So this morning, we are back in John. I am so, so excited to be back in John. John chapter 15, verses 1 to 11 this morning. And uh, when we left off, I mean, I, after 15 weeks, it was difficult for me to just dive in in the middle. And I was sharing with someone before the service that I, I thought, well, maybe I should just go back and preach the sermon we, I last preached. And give us a little bit of the context. And then I realized that that didn't have an end, right? We would end up back in John chapter 1 to give us the full context. So we're going to start off here, John 15, verse 1. And when we left off, we were in the middle of what's often been called Jesus' farewell discourse. And it's called a farewell discourse because all the words that Jesus speaks are spoken in the light of the fact that he's going away. And so it's, it's, it's not wrong to call it a farewell discourse, but that can be very misleading because the emphasis, the whole emphasis of the discourse is not on goodbye. It's not on farewell. The overwhelming emphasis, I'm not just being technical here, but the overwhelming emphasis is on Jesus' promise of a coming reunion with his disciples, and then of his spiritual and very powerful presence with them. So he'll, he'll be physically reunited with them after his resurrection. Then he's going to be spiritually present with them by, by his spirit, and then he's going to come again and take them to be with him, as we heard from First Thessalonians, with him where he is forever. So, we could call this discourse the presence discourse, the with us discourse. Jesus' departure, his, his going away, because he is going away. He says, I'm going away. And he, goes, and he means that in a couple different senses, in different places. But that departure and going away is, is the key to being with us. And so we ended the last time in John. The last verses we read and looked at were these in chapter 14. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up. Let us go from here. We can get, especially as preaching through it, we can forget it's the night It's the night of the trial. It's the night before the crucifixion. So all these words Jesus speaks knowing that the cross is only hours away. His departure is imminent. But remember Jesus just said this. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while the world will no longer see me but you will see me. Because I live, you will also live. And so, a lot of times we wonder, what does Jesus mean, I will come to you? Is that I will come to you in the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit? And and no, he's saying, I, me, I will come to you. I'm going away, I'm going to die, but I will come to you. But his point is not, I will come and stay with you forever. I will come and never, ever go away again. No, his point is, I will come, and then when I come to you, you will know I'm alive forevermore. You will know it then. I've told you it before, but you haven't got it yet. But then you'll know. Then you'll remember I said it. 
You'll know I'm alive. Death has no power over me any longer. And you will know that you will never be left as orphans. And so even though Jesus didn't come to us as he came to his disciples, he, he never leaves us as orphans either because he's alive forevermore. It's presence. So we come to verse 23, and Jesus said to Judas, not Iscariot, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my father will love him, and we will come to him. Okay? So now this is a, this is a different coming. He says, I will come to you, Jesus said to his disciples. Then he says, if anyone loves me, my father will love him, and we will come to him and make our dwelling with him. I just want to ask you, does that sound like your typical farewell? Like, you know, farewells are sad occasions. They're sad events as we experience them. But this is not your typical farewell. The whole theme of this farewell discourse is the joy and the peace of the risen Jesus unceasing presence with you, with us, and the fellowship we have with him now through, through his spirit who indwells us. So now we continue then this morning with Jesus' words to his disciples in chapter 15. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine grower. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he cleans it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Now, I just have to say, right, I'm, we're going to get to this, but, you know, we, we fixate a lot of times on every branch that doesn't bear fruit, he takes away. And some have tried to say that that means he lifts up, but Greek, it, it could, but contextually, it does not mean lifts up. He means he takes away. And, and so we fixate the, on that, and we begin to wonder, can I lose my salvation and all of this? So we're going to come to that in a moment. But I'm going to come to it now, because Jesus comes to it. What does Jesus say next? You are already clean. Now, do you say that to someone that you want to be really worrying and fretting about whether they're saved or not? Right? No, so, so Jesus' point in those words is not to promote paranoia. It's never ever to promote paranoia in God's people. Certainly to take away presumption, to take away uh, fleshly carnal assuming. Um, well, we'll come to that. So to us, we have this sudden imagery of a vine grower. We haven't seen that before in John. There's a lot of themes that repeat in John, light and dark and believing and faith and um, a lot of that, but um, life, right? Life is a big one. But we never heard about the vine and the vine grower. All of a sudden, boom, here it is. And the vine and the branches, and it seems to us a lot of times innovative. Like, whoa, this is new. This is novel, and so we like it because it's just this nice concept. But in fact, this is not new. And for Jesus, for his disciples, this, this was in one sense old news, in one sense, um, because it's imagery that's deeply rooted in the Old Testament. It's been around a long, long time. This whole vine, vine grower thing, it's been around a long time. So God's covenant people, Israel, were regularly compared to a vine that God had planted. 
And so we read in Isaiah, and I'm going to read these because when we, when we get this whole, Jesus' disciples had a huge head start on all of us. They knew their Old Testaments. They knew them better than we do. And so when they heard this vine, vine grower, they had a whole world in which that, that was set. And so we need to go get that world so that we can love what Jesus just said. So let's read in Isaiah chapter 5. It says, Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it and also hewed out a wine vat in it. Why do you hew out a wine vat in a vineyard? Obviously, you expect the vine to produce grapes to produce wine. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And there's the picture of one vine in this vineyard. He said, I planted a a choice vine. So this vineyard, this vine is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah, his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. So what's the main, why, why use vineyard imagery? There's a lot of other pictures could be used. Why the vineyard? Well, we'll see that in just a second. But, but, but what we could say now is that when God looked for his vineyard to produce good grapes, it produced only worthless grapes. That's, that's the point. I looked for fruit and there wasn't any. He looked for justice, bloodshed, righteousness, and there was a cry of distress. Now we know the fault wasn't in God. As, the, as, as Isaiah says, what more was there for him to do for his vineyard that he did not do in it? So the fault wasn't in God, the fault was in his people. So let me ask you the question then, what does one do with a vineyard that doesn't bear fruit? What's the point? It's, it's, it's like, in the, the analogy that came to my mind right away was, it's like when Jesus talks about salt that's lost its taste. What, 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 what good is salt if it's not giving flavor to your food or enabling you to taste that food better? It's good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. So what is the, in your handout, what's the use of a vine that doesn't produce fruit. It's, it's a very simple thing. We would like to say, well, it's, it's got innate intrinsic value just for being. Well, no. The vine is of no good if it doesn't produce grapes. That's, all it's, that's, all, that's, that's what it's there for. And so we read in Ezekiel, verses 1 to 8, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, how is the wood of the vine 
better than any wood of a branch. Now, maybe you could find other things to do with a vine, but the point here is, how is the wood good, better than any other wood of a branch, which is among the trees of the forest? Can wood be taken from the vine to make anything, or can men take a peg from it on which to hang any vessel? If it has been put into the fire for fuel, and the fire has consumed both of its ends, and its middle part has been charred, is it then useful for anything? Behold, while it is intact, it is not made into anything. How much less, when the fire has consumed it and it is charred, can it still be made into anything? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, as the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the fire for fuel, so have I given up the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I set my face against them. Though they have come out of the fire, yet the fire will consume them. Then you will know that I am the Lord when I set my face against them. Thus I will make the land desolate because they have acted unfaithfully, declares the Lord God. So, again, the point. What else is the wood of the vine good for if not for producing fruit? That's an obvious question to us maybe with, okay, I know the answer, let's get on with it, but stop and think about it. What else is it good for? And that's why God uses the imagery of the vine and the vineyard, because it demonstrates in your handout the justice of his judgments. Now, I want to ask this briefly, because Jesus doesn't, in this chapter, he, he does later, he does talk a little bit about, he, not a little bit, he talks about love. We're going to come to that next week. But Jesus doesn't spell out, now here's all the fruits that you need to work on. You need this long list. He's going to summarize it a lot in just love, but even, even that can be uh, teased out more, and he does that. But maybe we could just say the fruit that God expected his vine to produce was anything and everything that reflects the perfections of his own character. So, what's God like? And so, fruit in our lives is anything that faithfully reflects what he's like and the perfections of his character. So, of his love and his kindness, of his mercy and his grace, of his faithfulness, and of his righteousness and his justice, and his holiness. Why did God plant Israel like a vine in Canaan? So that Israel would produce fruit to his glory, reflecting his character, showing to the world what he's like. What should God do when the people he planted in Canaan do not produce any fruit? In the Old Testament, in every place except one. And we've only looked at two. We'll look at a couple more. But there's a lot of vine stuff in the Old Testament. In every single place except one, which we'll come to in a moment, this imagery of the vine communicates a negative message. The message is always the failure of Israel to produce fruit. Always. So listen to the prayer the psalmist prays in Psalm 80. And this is really important because it continues getting us ready for John 15. You removed a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground before it and it took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shadow. 
and the cedars of God with its boughs. It was sending out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why have you broken down its hedges so that all who pass that way pick its fruit? A boar from the forest eats it away, and whatever moves in the fields, feet in the field feeds on it. O God of hosts, turn again now, we beseech you. Look down from heaven and see, and take care of this vine. Even the shoot which your right hand has planted, and on the sun whom you have strengthened for yourself. Now this is very important, what just happened here? Because we can get confused all of a sudden. Weren't we just talking about a vine? Weren't we just talking about the people? And now we have this picture of a sun. Now Israel was not only pictured as a vine, Israel was also pictured as God's son. Out of Egypt I called my son. He said, tell Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son. So there's that, but why, why go to talking about a son? Why not just stick with the vine? We've got that. Well, more specifically, Israel's king. The king represented all the people, right? Israel was God's son, but the king was God's son uniquely because he represented God's son, the people. It, it was both together. And so the king was God's royal son. Therefore, here's, here's the important thing. If you wanted to pray that God would take care of the vine that his right hand planted, you were praying that God would restore David's throne. You can't pray the one without the other. And so the faithful, believing Israelites, they understood that the fruitfulness of the people, the fruit-bearing power of the people, Depended, it was in your handout, finally dependent upon a righteous son of David sitting on David's throne. You might say, well, can't they all go bearing fruit whether the king is good or not? No, no. You had to have a righteous king before the nation would bear fruit. So they all lamented and they all prayed with the psalmist. Your vine is burned with fire. It is cut down. They perish at the rebuke of your countenance. Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon the son of man. Who's the son of man here? It's Israel. And it's Israel represented in their king, whom you made strong for yourself. And then, then we shall not turn back from you. Revive us, and we will call upon your name. O Lord God of hosts, restore us. Cause your face to shine upon us, and we will be saved. So what what do you see there in that verse? We see that salvation, because they're praying for salvation. Lord, bring your salvation. But, But what else are they praying for? Fruitfulness. Lord, bring fruitfulness to your people. Salvation and fruitfulness go together. In the Old Testament. The psalmist says, Then we shall not turn back from you. Revive us and we will call upon your name. So in your handout, the whole point of salvation is fruitfulness. It's like that's the whole point of a vine. So when God saves the vine, when God tends and cares for his vine, why does he do that? 
for the sake of fruitfulness. Because the whole point of salvation is to reveal the glory of God. And in turn, as we have the privilege of showing forth his perfections, to fill our own hearts with joy. Fruitfulness brings joy. Fruitfulness brings the glory of God. Fruitfulness is the goal and even the reason for salvation. Because it sums up our joy in God's glory. So it's simple. We can say it like this. The glory of God and your joy requires fruit bearing. Now, I'm not saying that God is not glorious unless we bear fruit. But to bring him glory requires fruit bearing. And so the wonderful thing about God's salvation is that it carries within itself in your handout, the promise of bringing forth much fruit. See, when, 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 when God says, I will save you, God's salvation has within itself the promise of fruit bearing. So the prophet Isaiah, here's that one passage I talked about that's not negative, but it's, it's looking to the future, this future day of salvation. And that day, a vineyard of wine, sing of it, right? I, the Lord, am its keeper. I water it every moment so that no one will damage it. What a, what a change from the wall being broken down. I guard it night and day. I have no wrath. Should someone give me briars and thorns in battle, then I would step on them. I would burn them completely or let him... Rely on my protection. Let him make peace with me. Let him make peace with me. In the days to come, Jacob will take root. Israel will blossom and sprout. And they will fill the whole world with fruit. Can you even picture This is a big deal. So the true believers in Israel, again, I like to think, what did they see? They could only understand these things partly. So they knew, this is what they knew from their own experience in the history of Israel. When you got a good king sitting on the throne, Israel as a nation brings forth fruit. When you have a bad king sitting on the throne, Israel as a nation brings forth bad fruit or no fruit, however you want to look at that. But, so, so they knew when you got a good king, the nation brings forth fruit, but that's a picture. That was just a picture pointing towards a day of salvation when it wouldn't just be this big nation bringing forth fruit, it would be every single man, woman, and child in the people of God as branches on the vine bringing forth fruit. In the Old Covenant, again, the nation as a whole was the vine. It was the nation was the vine. There was no talk really of, of you're a branch on the vine. It was you're a vine, Right? That's the picture. That's the type. But the question that they must have had was, how is God going to bring about a day when every single individual in God's covenant people is a fruit-bearing branch on the vine? How is God going to do that? More specifically, in your handout, maybe you know the blank. What kind of righteous king will need to be sitting on David's throne for that to happen. 
Because the best king that Israel produced, right, in, in, in the, all the days of its history, could not bring about every single one in the covenant people bearing fruit. It was just the big nation as a whole. What kind of king makes every man, woman, and child a fruit-bearing branch on the vine? Jesus said to his disciples, I am the true vine. And my father is the vine grower. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he cleans it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Do you see now how glorious those words are? How they, how they point us to the, to the all-sufficiency of Jesus, to the fact that, that he, is, he is all, to his beauty, to his power, to the, to the power of his person. But now, here's, we want to say this. When Jesus says he's the true vine, he's not saying Israel was a fake vine. Israel was a counterfeit vine. When he says, I am the true vine, what he's doing is he's saying, yeah, remember the vine in the Old Testament that never brought forth fruit? Well, I am the fulfillment of that vine. And so it's through me that God will tend and plant and care for his vine again. I'm the fulfillment of it. So where we failed and where we felt our in total, not only inadequacy, but helplessness, Jesus came to do what we couldn't. So he became the substance in your handout, the shadow. Israel was the shadow pointing ahead to the substance, the true vine that's Jesus, who would succeed where Israel failed. Now here's the thing. If Jesus is now the true vine, and how many vines are there? How many true vines are there? There's only one true vine. So what does that mean then that all of us are? There's only one true vine, then all of us in God's covenant people are now fruit-bearing branches in Jesus, the true vine. It's about our identity. It's, it's who we are in Jesus. So what am I in Jesus? I'm a fruit-bearing branch. That's what I am. It's what you are. It's what we are. So when Jesus says that he is the vine and his father is the vine grower. Does that, does that strike any of you as awkward at first? If Jesus is the vine and he's saying, when my father grows me, right? Well, no, it, it obviously shouldn't because Jesus is emphasizing here his subordination to his father as a true human being made just like you and me. Therefore, since he's a true human being, what throne can he sit on? David's throne. Therefore, since he can truly sit on David's throne as our king, through our union with him, and I put those words as the blanks because I wanted us to see that through our union with him, as the life-giving vine, we, the branches, can fill the whole world with fruit. Now what does Jesus mean when he says then, every branch in me that does not bear fruit the Father takes away. I want to start off by saying, I won't answer this to anyone's 
human satisfaction. Um, but I just want to look at the text in the context of John and, and, and look at this. In the first place, I want to ask you this question. How can a branch that is truly, we'll say truly, fully, in the fullest sense of the word, in Jesus? Now, I want you to picture that. Picture that. Can you? A branch in Jesus with his life coursing through it. How can such a branch fail to produce fruit? That would be a reflection, not just on us as bad branches, it would be a reflection on Jesus as the true vine. It would also be, therefore, a reflection on his father as the vine grower. Not, not Israel the vine, but this is the true vine. And I think then Jesus means for us, when he says this, I think he means for us to say, what? I think he means for us to start scratching our heads. I think he means for us to feel the total incompatibility of these two ideas. And here's these two ideas. A branch in him that fails to produce fruit. Jesus can say to the disciples in the room with him, and that's very important, the ones in the room, he wouldn't have said this anywhere else. Every branch in me that bears fruit, my Father cleans it so that it may bear more fruit. You, and he could look at every single one in the room with him, you are already clean, already clean, because of the word which I have spoken to you, and the word that you have believed. So I'm just going to say this again. And, and now we're going to come to the other side of this, right? Because Jesus didn't say this just for us to qualify it out of existence. Jesus, uh, if the disciples are already clean, it's not possible that they should ever be taken away because they're already clean. That's John 13. They can't be taken away for their failure to produce fruit. Instead, what does Jesus promise? He promises that his father will continue cleaning or pruning them so that they bear more fruit. Now Jesus can say this to them because Judas Iscariot has already left the room. Judas isn't there anymore. Judas shared in Jesus in a lot of ways, but Judas wasn't clean. He wasn't already clean. Jesus could not say that and would not say that to Judas. He wasn't clean because he had never savingly believed the word that Jesus spoke. What did Jesus say? All who come to me I will not cast out. He said, it is the will of my Father that I lose not a single one that comes to me. So we have this all over in John. right? But then we come to this, and here was a man, Judas, who to all outward appearances looked like he was a branch in the vine. And so using the vine imagery, which is perfectly suited to this, and, and the horticultural realities of, 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 of a vine, um, Judas was a branch in Jesus that failed to produce fruit. But I'm just going to say, any branch in Jesus, and Jesus didn't do the air quotes, right? And we don't have Greek quotation marks to show that, yeah, in Jesus but in a sense, that's what Jesus is doing. Any branch in Jesus that fails to produce fruit only proves he's not in Jesus. <laughs> not in the true, full sense of those words. It's just impossible. 
And that's a biblical tension that we simply must live with and also embrace because it gives us confidence and it guards us from presumption. In the end, the true state of that branch will be exposed as it was in the case of Judas when that branch is taken away by the vine grower. Now there's both a warning and a promise in these words. Number one, we know it's impossible for those who are already clean. I mean, just who are truly in Jesus. If you are partaking ever of the life-giving nourishment of the vine, it is not possible not to produce fruit. There, there, is, there is the reality that we must strive and, and work, that, we have, that no one ever produced fruit without effort, right? Um, but the life of the vine is the promise of fruit in us. It's not my effort that's the promise of fruit. That's the difference. Um, that's the power and the promise of God's salvation in your handout. On the other hand, those who to all outward appearances, and I mean, I mean the best among us, the most godly and mature Christian can have the wool pulled over his eyes about someone, right? Because none of us see the heart as God sees the heart. None of us have that infallible discernment. So to all outward appearances in Jesus, but who fail to produce the fruit. Now, here, here's the key. The fruit, because we see we call lots of things fruit. But Jesus, as we're going to see in a moment, means the fruit that can only come from a life-giving union with him. That branch will be taken away to be burned, and that's the warning. But here's the wonderful thing. In your handout, it is only those who fail to produce fruit. No one else who will ever be taken away. Therefore, that assures us. There is an assurance here. Jesus assures his disciples, you're already clean. There's assurance. We are already clean if we're already clean and have truly been united with Jesus by faith in his word. We can know, we can know, we will never, ever be taken away. It's in the full light of that promise that Jesus goes on to say in verses 4 to 5, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit from itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So, let's ask this question. This is not... It's rhetorical in the tense of you don't have to answer out loud, but it's not rhetorical in the sense of think about it. How much can we do apart from Jesus? Okay. How much can we do apart from Jesus? It's a great Sunday school question, right? With a great Sunday school answer. But I'm not sure we ever fully have really grasped this. Literally, nothing. Now, really? Really? How much fruit can a branch produce from itself? Do you expect to see a branch, a grapevine branch, lying on the ground growing grapes? 
Can it, can it even begin to produce the beginning of a grape? The point here isn't that we need Jesus' help. Because a lot of times we say, help me, help me. And that's good to pray, and that's true. But the point here isn't we need Jesus' help. That's not the point. The point is that without his resurrection life actually flowing through us, working in us, living in us, we can do literally, literally nothing. Nothing. That just grabbed me this week. That convicted me. That, that reoriented some of my thinking. So what does it tell us about the so-called fruit of those who are taken away? Right? It tells us that none of it was true fruit. There's a lot that we call fruit that's apparently not fruit. Because, because it was all stuff that could be done uh, ultimately in the, the efforts of the flesh. It tells us that none of it was true fruit because contrary to all outward appearances, none of it was the fruit that can only come from a life-giving union with Jesus. Now, outwardly, it might look the same, but at the end of the day, you, you, could, have a, you could have a plastic grape, right? Or you could have the grape that's got juice in it, life in it. Even though Judas likely cast out demons in Jesus' name. What did Judas do? Likely cast out demons in Jesus' name. Jesus said, many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name? We know Jesus sent Judas out with the twelve to cast out demons. Even though Judas likely performed miracles and must have been on a high performing miracles, we can be sure that Judas never brought forth any fruit. Because how much can Judas do apart from Jesus? Nothing. Now, could God take the, the demons that were cast out and the miracles that were performed, that he performed through Judas, could God take those things and, and work through them and bring himself glory? Yes, God can do all those things. But did Judas produce fruit? No. It wasn't the fruit that he produced through a union with the vine. If he had, if he had produced fruit, if Judas had ever produced any fruit, what would have happened? God would have further cleaned him, pruned him, so that he would do what? Bear what? More fruit. Instead, he was taken away, which proves he never did bear any fruit. Now, are we seeing then in this uh, the absolute necessity of abiding in Jesus? Can we see that any life lived that isn't the fruit of abiding in Jesus is ultimately of no lasting value. I'm not saying that a human being is not of value. I'm saying the life lived is of no lasting value and is therefore fit only to be cast into the fire. So Jesus says in verse 16, he he continues then, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up and they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. And that's, that's universally true. It's true of, of everyone who doesn't abide in Jesus. But it's especially here in context a warning, perhaps. Uh, Jesus is talking to his disciples, but he must have in mind the Jews who all think they're the vine. Right? It's a warning to those who confess the name of Jesus 
who have a form of godliness, as Paul talks about, but who deny its power. It's a warning to those who are not in a true living union with Jesus through faith in his name. And who therefore have never in their lives, they've brought, again, they've brought forth the, the plastic grapes. Certainly, I'm certain they've brought forth those, but never any true fruit. So how do we know that we aren't empty confessors? I want to clarify that we put our assurance of salvation ultimately in God's promise. Because God makes promises to us. And we trust his word. And that's, that's the end of it. <laughs> right? What God says we believe. And that's where our assurance is rooted. But there's another side to this. And there's no room for presumption. There's certainly not any room for our own fleshly efforts. We've seen that. Fleshly efforts are worthless. So Jesus continues in verses 7 to 8, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Fruit bearing for the Christian isn't about producing just enough fruit to avoid being burned. And I just want to say, I was like, what do I say after that? What came to my mind was, that's just incoherent. I, it's, biblically speaking, when we read the Bible, it's just incoherent. You don't even know what to say to it. I mean, it's not like we have to qualify and say, well, um, yeah, it's true that if you don't bear it, fruit, you will be burned, and, but let's, let's, no, it's just, that's not how we think of fruit. Christians don't think of fruit like that. Fruit bearing for the Christian is about bearing much fruit. You think about fruit, your, your immediate qualifier, your immediate um, uh, modifier is much. And always the other phrase Jesus uses is more fruit. That's what we think about when we think of fruit. And why is that? Because it's by this fruit bearing that the Father is glorified. Right. And it's because by this fruit bearing that we are continuously showing to me. I'm showing to me. And we're always showing to each other, those around us, that we are in truth Jesus' disciples. Why, why is this much fruit, more fruit? Because, brothers and sisters, this fruit bearing is what we were saved for. It's, it's why we're a vine. It's why we're branches on the vine. It's what our salvation has itself promised and guaranteed. Now, Jesus talks about bearing more fruit, right? We're never bearing enough fruit. Do I say, am I bearing enough fruit to get into heaven? No, we don't talk like that. We don't talk like that. But we are always talking about much and more. It's just, that's the Christian way of talking because we've been saved. This is why we should always be knowing. uh, This is why we should always be in your handout asking that we might bear much fruit. Are we disappointed when we find out that when Jesus said, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you? Are we disappointed when we find that, oh, he meant, he meant this? Well, no, he just assumed that, of course, that's what we'd be asking. Ask, whatever, ask for whatever fruit-bearing you want, for however much fruit-bearing you want. 
and it will be done for us. It will be done for us. I think of James who says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men liberally and without reproach, and it will be done for him. But, but let him ask in faith, not doubting, not saying, I don't know if I really want it or not. Already we should be able to see that for the Christian, there's a built-in, superabounding joy in the bearing of fruit. So Jesus goes on to say in verses 9 to 10, Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. Now look what Jesus is doing here again. Look what he says. Just as the fathers loved me. Why does he do that? Why does he, keep, why does he draw that comparison? Why does he say, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love? Once again, he's emphasizing his subordination to his father as a true human being made like you and me, which means not only is he the, is he the eternal word and son of God, He's a true son of David who can sit on David's throne as the ultimate good king. So that when he sits on the throne and when all his covenant people are actually united with him as branches in a vine, we can be, bring forth fruit. Does that fill us with hope? Does that fill us with joy? Does that fill us with the desire to then ask? Because how often does Jesus say, you have not because you ask not? You're not, bearing, you're not bearing as much fruit as you could be. You're not bringing more and more and more and more and more fruit because you're not asking. Ask, and it will be done for you. When Jesus says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, he's not saying that his love is waiting for you to obey. I'll love you if you obey me first. Any more than he's saying that my father told me I'll love you if you obey me first. That's not what God told Jesus. Well, I'll wait to see if you love me, then I'll, or if you obey me, then I'll love you. What did Jesus say? Just as the father has loved, accomplished, completed, loved me, so I have also loved you. Now, brothers and sisters, we can rest in your handout. We can rest in the wonder and the comfort and the security and the joy of being loved already by Jesus. He's not waiting for you to produce enough fruit before he loves you more. That's not how this works. But how do we rest in his love? Say, oh, good, then he loves me. But how do you rest in it? It's not about getting him to love you. It's about resting in that love. How do you rest in Jesus' love fully? By keeping his commandments. No one can rest in Jesus' love apart from keeping his commandments. To remain in Jesus' love and to know his love experientially both, to remain in it and to know it, is to keep his commandments. So we could maybe say it like this. If you keep my commandments, you will abide, or we could say, you will be abiding in my love. If you keep my commandments, you'll be abiding in my love, because that's what, that's what abiding in my love is. 
keeping my commandments. Now, why is that? Why is that? Because keeping Jesus' commandments is walking in the way where Jesus is walking. It's not, it's not, like, it's not like abiding in Jesus is just about keeping rules. It, it, it mean, it's, it's about abiding in Jesus is walking in the path that he's walking in, side by side with him, on the same path. We saw that in, in John chapter 4. So now we could say it even more like this. Let's use this imagery. The way of abiding in Jesus is, is walking in the path or, or the way that he himself is. So you're, you're not walking in something external to Jesus. You're walking in Jesus. But he is a way. <laughs> He's not some nebulous thing. He is a way. I am the way, he says. Right? So when we abide in Jesus, we're walking in the path that he is. To abide in Jesus and he in us. I mean, let's just stop and just admit. There's things there we cannot, we cannot define. That's, that's beautiful. It's, it, it is to enjoy a relational intimacy and communion with Jesus that is accessible to all of us here. And that can't be captured in words. Because it's something you must know experientially. But this isn't something purely mystical. It's the way of fruit bearing. The way of abiding in Jesus is the way of fruit bearing as branches in the vine. So it's impossible to be truly in Jesus' commandments, keeping Jesus' commandments, bearing fruit, and not be abiding in his love. If you're truly keeping Jesus' commandments, I guarantee you, you're abiding in his love. It's impossible to be abiding in Jesus' love, because sometimes we can, we can confuse a lot of things with abiding in Jesus' love. Because if we're not keeping his commandments, whatever we thought was these feelings of abiding in Jesus' love is not abiding in Jesus' love. <laughs> right? It's impossible to abide in Jesus' love and not be truly keeping his commandments. Therefore, let us abide in Jesus' love, right? Keeping his commandments. And if we abide in him and his words abide in us, ask. Let us ask for whatever we wish and know that it will be done for us. And so in this way, we will bear much fruit and always more fruit in your handout. The fruit that can what? what? What's the word now? It's a wonderful word. Yes. It can only be the result of a living, life-giving union with Jesus. I, I want that fruit in my life. And I want the joy I know that increases as the fruit increases. What will the result of this fruit bearing be? I went there already. What's the result of bringing the Father glory and abiding in Jesus' love? What's the result of that? The result is always You cannot bear fruit and not have this result. It's just not possible. By the very nature of the case, it is a deep down, super abounding joy. So Jesus says in verse 11, These things I have spoken to you, so that my joy may be in you. 
Now, what does he mean by my joy? You know, Jesus was a joyful man. (laughs) And he was joyful because he kept his father's commandments and Jesus bore fruit. And he knew that through his death and resurrection, he would bear fruit through us, right? Through the branches in him. And so Jesus was full of joy. And Jesus tells us these things and gives us these commands so that his joy might be shared by us. So that we, meet, we might know, like, like, we don't just watch Jesus being joyful. We, we share in his joy. We know what he felt like, what he feels like, because we have that joy in us. It's his joy in us. And that your joy, Jesus says, may be complete. The day of salvation that the psalmist prayed for, remember? They prayed for this day of salvation to come. And that the prophet Isaiah foretold is here. Which means, if the day of salvation is here, the day of fruit bearing is here. It's here. And may our joy then be always more and more complete. It's not, you know, I'll just, until that day, when to quote Jude, we are made to stand in the presence of his glory, blameless, with great joy. So we see it coming to its conclusion one day. And can you imagine the fruit we'll be bringing forth in the new heavens and the new earth? Even today, though, we are in Jesus. May God do that work in us now. Lord, we thank you for, for your word. We thank you that we live in the day when you have answered the prayer of the psalmist. Um, when the prophecy of Isaiah is, has been and is being fulfilled. When the whole world is being filled with fruit. When every single man, woman, and child in your covenant people is a fruit-bearing branch on the vine. What a glorious picture. And yet, as we see this, this picture, we feel a tension. Because we, we, f- we see the beauty of this, and we want it more, and yet, Lord, we confess our sin, and our, our failure even to ask, so often. And Lord, we thank you that you are merciful. And we thank you that, that among the fruits that you look for is the fruit of repentance. Of, of, not, of not pretending that we are perfect or have already borne enough fruit, but of, of recognizing we're not and we haven't. So we pray, Lord, your, your forgiveness, even for this last week, for the ways that that we have fallen short of this beautiful picture of the fruit-bearing branch in the vine, in Jesus, his life in us. Um, and Lord, help us then in the coming week, by your grace, by your spirit, by, by the presence of the risen Lord with us, making his dwelling with us, that we would bring forth much fruit. And by this, you would be glorified and our joy would be more and more and more complete until we stand in your presence, blameless with great joy. Lord, we thank you for these things. Thank you now that we can respond, continue in response to your word in in song and in receiving the Lord's Supper. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.